I'm not here. Marcus, you have to introduce the show. Go on, you do it. I'm not here. Fine. You're so temperamental, Paul. Just do it. Go on. <laughs> Hello on and here. welcome. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of BergWorld.com. This is show number You can't remember what number it is, can you? Oh, no, it says show 82. So you, you, you do have some uses. You send me notes, more or less, to cover more <laughs> or less what you're going to talk about. It's blank this week, though. I can't work out Strangely. why. Strangely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Oh, there's my bit. And nothing else. No, that's not true. Paul's got lots of interesting news stories Yay. on this week's show. I like the sound of Wukag Samurai. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm still on holiday, you can tell, can't you? You've been having four year old fun all week, haven't you? Oh, it's been at what point tell me this. What? At what point do children, especially small boys, what why is it that they suddenly reach a point where they find poo and wee funny? Why? Does yours not find it funny? No, he does. He just started. So uh, so everything is, is poo-related now. Yes. And he finds it hugely funny. And I don't understand what genetic thing triggers this in small boys. It's very funny. <laughs> it's still, so, but it never goes away, does it? Well, not really, no. Toilet so I've, I've had to pretend not to laugh at poo jokes all week. So uh, there we go. No, but no, it's really good. To, you're supposed to laugh at the jokes. Oh, am I? And, and and your wife gets all uppity about it. Ah, is that how it works? Yeah, told me the rule. <laughs> okay, there you go. Well, anyway, I, you I, know, I haven't said what the show's about, have I? I can't remember. It's something to do with web design and development Look, and management. Oh, and yes. stuff like that. Yeah, I can web never design remember it. stuff. I've exactly. only ever heard it about well eighty-two times. <laughs> yeah, for those involved in designing, no, I've forgotten it. I've been away so long, I've forgotten it. Oh, well, designing, mind. developing, so, and managing websites on a daily basis. Running, I think it is, isn't it? Oh, no, it was me. Running websites, top of the class. Never mind. So anyway, on this week's show, I'm going to talk about managing inquiries that come via your website. Marcus, I believe you're doing something about links. Yes, uh, I didn't really read it. You see. <laughs> you can't even be bothered to read it. Yeah, but basically, no. yeah, the the kind of pros and cons, do's and don'ts of having that link on your client's website. Back to you. And we've also got Rob Borley, our lead technical developer, coming on the show and talking about why Headscape have chosen to go with ASP.NET when all the cool kids seem to be doing PHP and Ruby on Rails and stuff like that. So that's what we've got lined up in today's show. If I can be bothered, really. Uh, I might just go sorry, back to Cornwall. Sorry, 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 sorry. All the cool kids. Well, that's what <laughs> they say, isn't it? Obviously, we all, can't all, accuse... all the geeky techs, you mean. Oh, okay. Whatever. <laughs> but I, I'm thinking just giving up and going back to Cornwall and enjoying the Mediterranean sunshine down there. Where, where did you go? Cornwall. 
I know. Buccal, wearing Cornwall. Bewed. Ah, bewed. That was near where I were born. Well, there you go. And do you know what the real irony is? I yes. had Mediterranean solid sunshine the entire time, and Chris Scott goes to Tuscany and has British <laughs> rain. Yeah, so cold as well. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's justice in the world. Well, not really, because he's a much nicer person than me. But anyway. Proof, proof of global warming, eh? Mind you, no, that's not really proof of global warming, is it? Anyway, uh, should we do a show? How do you go feel about that? Yeah, okay, then. Okay, so as tradition dictates, first up is our news segment. And this week I came across a great article by Keith Robinson. Now, if you haven't come across Keith before, I think he works for Blue Flavor. Um, but he, he writes some really cool stuff, and he's one of my uh, favorite bloggers out there. Um, so it's really good to come across this article, which I just kind of randomly came across, not through his site or anything. And it, he talks about being consistently creative. Now, consistently being creative, I think, is incredibly challenging, especially when a chunk of your time is spent on less creative activities like coding or consultancy or stuff like that. To maintain that level of creativity um, is quite high. But this article provides some really good practical advice about how to keep those creative juices flowing. (laughs) The one part... (laughs) Don't snigger. The one part that particularly resonated with me personally was the need for time to play. And I guess, uh, and I, I obviously don't want Marcus to hear this, but I am incredibly grateful that in Headscape, Marcus and Chris both allow me just time to play with stuff and experiment and try new things. We do all the work think, and you just doss about all day. Yes, I knew that trying was going to say? come. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Uh, and uh, bigger the fool you is my response. Um, but I think the result of having that time to play is that I'm actually a lot more creative um, and certainly a lot more creative than when I when I was the one that used to do all the work in Headscape because uh, that used to be the way. When was that? And then we replaced me with with clever people. So um, oh, That I, was when Chris actually, Sanderson joined, was it? Yes. So what was that? Three weeks in? Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Um, however this article does also offer I just really am not with it today I just want to waffle and not actually do anything of any value Uh, which some would argue is most weeks of the show however this article does also offer advice for those that don't have that same luxury of kind of dotting around like me Um, it talks about how to force yourself to engage with even the most dull project as well as how to pursue your own projects in your spare time and um, the importance of interacting with other creative people. So if you struggle to remain creative, uh, then do check out this article. Obviously, as normal, you can uh, view those articles by going to our show notes. Now, if you're new to Boag World, you do that by going to boagworld.com forward slash podcast. If you're listening to the latest episode, you will find that there mm. for you on the screen waiting to be clicked on however if you're listening to an old episode then you'll need to click the archive by selecting from the top right hand corner link that i've tried to make really obvious but people still still seem to miss yeah, not terrible usability that site yeah i know Ooh. i'm not very good at this web design stuff um so our next news story is wakag samurai so have you never heard of wakag samurai it sounds Marcus. so geeky, it's beyond belief. But yeah, Gordon, no, I haven't. No, it, it's a new thing. <laughs> well, it's based on the CSS Samurai, 
which are the with the group that existed years back that promoted CSS and standards and that kind of stuff. But so all of this kicked off about a year ago now, where Joe Clark, who is a prominent um, accessibility expert and was a a member of the uh, WCAG working group to develop the kind of second edition of WCAG, he published an article on List Apart entitled To Hell with WCAG 2, where basically he was kind of giving up in disgust at the the horrendous process um, within the W3C to develop the new accessibility guidelines. I remember it well. Uh, yes. We mentioned it on the show, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. So there was this... Yeah, there was this, he, he did this slamming attack, uh, basically, on the W3C. And Actually, then went Paul, on to... Paul, 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 Paul Yes. I just yes. I was I was reading the new WCAG 2 uh, summary, sort of 100-page summary or whatever it was the other day, and felt that it was the perfect content for another show on accessibility guidelines. No, I'm not <laughs> doing that again. <laughs> Especially with WCAG 2, because I'm not as confident with that. And no, 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 that's why I'm suggesting it. Yeah, I can remember, just remember to... the howl as you made last time. I made one, <laughs> but it just happened to be a very big one that everybody then jumped on. Thanks. So uh, I don't even care. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he, Joe then went on to create the Wukag Samurais, which uh, were basically going to say, well, you know, stuff Wukag 2. We're going to take Wukag 1 and we're going to tweak it and amend it and make it work for, you know, the modern web. So a year on, um, we now have a working draft of WCAG 2, which has received quite a bit of positive praise. You know, it's getting there, I think would be fair to say. Um, and then this week, the, um, the WCAG Samurais released their amendments to WCAG 1, which I had a look at. Now, I have to say that their kind of guidelines or their amendments are a lot easier to understand than WCAG 2. And I would be more confident to do a show on that than I would be on the <laughs> WCAG 2 guidelines. Um, but WCAG 2 has come a long way since Joe Clark's original article. And yeah. is this Have they kind of WCAG 2 got, got theirs out politically early to sort of douse the fire, if you like? No, I don't think so. I just... I, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't deign to know what politics go on behind the, the scenes. And to be honest, I don't really care. And the majority of web designers just don't care. Um, and I, I'm kind of left with mixed feelings, really, about the release of the Samurai guidelines. So mm. you know, I'm not an accessibility expert, as was evident by that previous <laughs> show I did. Um, uh, so from that regards, I'm kind of naturally drawn towards the samurai guidelines because you read them and they're really simple and they're really obvious and there's no kind of um, confusing or vague language like um, until user agents support certain things or, you know, all kinds of weird stuff that the uh, WCAG guidelines have in. Mm. However, at the same time, um, I've got a feeling, you know, I've got this kind of feeling that, yeah, another set of guidelines is only going to confuse matters. And I've got images of talking to clients and, and trying to explain why what they really ought to go with the samurai guidelines rather than WCAG 2. Mm. You know, it's just... People still good, refer to WCAG 1 all the time anyway. Yeah. Well, WCAG 2 is not officially released. It's only a working draft at this stage. That's true, yeah. But so... so you, mm, it's a hard one, isn't it? I mean... Oh, yeah. I suppose you've got to look at government. I suppose at governments around the world, UK government, US government, and see if any, if they refer to any, either, either or. 
Well, I'm kind of hoping, yeah, I'm kind of hoping that the different interpretations on accessibility will make clients realize accessibility and and clients and government for that matter um, is about more than conforming to a series of checkpoints and that it actually encourages clients and government and the rest to start thinking in depth about accessibility rather than, oh, here's a set of guidelines that we can just pluck out of the air and slap onto any site. Uh, But if they're good, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but if those guidelines do cover everything and they're good, um, then that's the best best thing. Yeah, but guidelines. But guidelines are guidelines. You know, Mm. the trouble is, you need to kind of look at individual circumstances and situations, and you know what target audience your website's trying to reach, and you know what whether you're using multimedia, how you're going to use that. it kind of needs to be a more individual thing rather than we get a lot of clients don't we that just want to check the boxes and do the minimum in order to conform with the wai priority two guidelines or whatever and i just think i don't know you need to be a little bit more flexible about these things and that accessibility needs to be a kind of inherent part of your process rather than slapped on anyway we spent too long on that new story and i'm going to move on to the next one we're probably going to discuss that more on the dot net podcast which should be good. We're going to talk about um, WCAG Samurai. We're going to talk about WCAG 2. We're going to talk about HTML5. If you haven't listened to the .NET Magazine podcast, then you can go to iTunes and do a search, and you will find it. It's more of a roundtable discussion. Anyway, let's move on. It's not good. <laughs> he said <laughs> modestly. Only because you're not on it. <laughs> right, next story up. Movable Type 4. Yes, I do use Movable Type. And I know the rest of the world uses WordPress, but I don't care. Um, but movable type works for me. What can I say? I run the Boag World website using movable type, and I have no intentions of changing. So please do not bother writing in trying to convince me, because I won't reply. That said, I want to point out that there is a new release of movable type. It's only in beta at the moment, but it is movable type 4. And I have to say that I haven't installed it yet, but it does look very good. It's still in beta, and apparently some people are saying that it's quite buggy. Uh, But the features look really quite impressive. They've revamped the entire interface, which, to be honest, in my opinion, was loads better than WordPress in the first place. Um, But they've also done things like they've improved some of the content management facilities. They've added a WYSIWYG editor. Hurrah! Um, And they've also added support for things like OpenID and improved the comment system and that kind of stuff. So if you're not already a WordPress drone um, and that you haven't already been brainwashed into the WordPress world, then check it out. You never know. You might like it. Final news story today is the fact that this week the dev.mobi website, which, by the way, if you haven't checked out, is an absolutely superb website with all kinds of stuff about developing websites for mobile devices. Um, They have released a comprehensive guide to mobile web development which um, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you'll know that I'm constantly banging on about the mobile web. And developing websites uh, that work on mobile web devices is going to become, in my opinion, a really big business area. Um, And although it's challenging, I think that if you kind of are willing to embrace it, it could be a really good niche and you could develop a very good business off of developing mobile websites, which isn't something I don't think I want to get into. But there you go. Some people do. Um, of course, the trouble is, is at the moment the market's quite immature and that finding good information can be tricky sometimes. 
But this guide is very, very good. I can't claim to have read it all yet, but what I have read um, has been excellent. And I think if you're looking to explore the area of the mobile web further, either for your own individual website or if you're a web design agency and looking to be able to sell web um, the mobile web solutions, then this is a must read. Definitely very good indeed. Okay, so that wraps up the news. Let's move on to uh, Marcus's exciting section. Okay, I'm Agony Uncle again. I quite like being Agony Uncle. I mean, please send in your sexual deviance questions and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth pointing out that a lot of people don't know about Agony aunties. I think don't it's they? a peculiarly British thing from what I can gather. Oh, right, okay. So you asking people to write in with their sexual deviancies <laughs> just is going to sound really disturbing unless you know what an agony ante is. And even okay. then it sounds quite bad. It's, it, t- women's magazines have problem pages. They're often, you often have an agony aunt at the end of it, hence why agony uncle. Anyway, <sighs> let's move on quickly. I was having a look yes. around in the forum for something to talk about and found this question from Remy. I was wondering what the opinion was on adding a... S- adding a site built by such and such a company at the footer of a client website. I remember thinking it was normal practice in the late 90s and early noughties. I hate that term. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What's the right term? Thousands? Early 2000. Early 2000s, yeah, okay. But the more I look around today, the less and less I see other web design slash developer firms doing it. I do think it's a cleaner design if you don't add a link off to a random website, but I remember hearing on one of the podcasts on Borrowed World that this is how this had, this had contributed to Headscape's page ranking on Google. That is, by having well-ranked websites linking back to Headscape. Just want to see what other people thought before I go and slap a nasty whodunit at the bottom of my client's website. Uh, Which is, is a- so 1990s, that's our trouble. We just haven't moved into the new millennium, have we? <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, I, the one thing I don't actually cover is is that the value uh, of having a link that's not relevant to the content, or the the, the lack of value of having that. Um, I would I would argue that to to a very small percentage, it's actually a useful link to have on a page, and maybe that means that you should only have uh, a link on one page on a site, a, a credits page, or maybe on the about mm. us page, that kind of thing, uh, and then people who are looking to thinking this is a great website i need a new website who did this they don't have to phone someone up to ask them but anyway that's mm. not what i'm going to also i've got fe- i've got a feeling that it, I, I think it did help our page ranking at one point but i'm not so sure it would do any more okay. but i couldn't i couldn't really back that up because i'm not an seo expert but anyway sorry this is your segment i'll shut up that's right you join in when you when you like i've been interrupting you ever since the start of the show um that is very true <laughs> I was listening to Chris Moyles, the Radio 1 UK radio DJ, probably the biggest radio DJ, in the, literally in more ways than one, the biggest radio DJ in, 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 in the UK. And they were doing this thing when they were doing the really annoying repeat what the person's just said. And they were what, doing repeat it. Repeat what the person's just said. Exactly that. But a m- exactly. millisecond behind them and four of them doing it. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Was making me laugh. Anyway, I really am. Good. We're, I'm as bad as you are this morning. Yeah, going off. Going it's off. It's going to be the longest show ever, isn't it? <laughs> I'll just. This... I'll start randomly cutting sections out. Here we go. Go on and carry on. Okay, okay, and just the odd word comes out. This is a yeah. fairly old post, 
Uh, it's on the on the Bergwell forum, and there's a lot of interesting responses to the question on the forum. But I thought that maybe chatting things through and letting people know what Headscape does could be useful. First point and most important point is it does generate business. It really does, lots of it. And I was thinking about this, and we used to have we used to do work for the National Trust, a uh, huge uh, charity in the UK. Uh, and I, I can honestly say that if we hadn't have had uh, a link on their credits page, I mean, it wasn't on every page of the site, it was on a credits page, it, it, it would be debatable as to whether Headscape would still be here. We won so much business through that link in the early years. Um, it, it happens. I mean, I, I try to make sure that I ask all new inquirers how they discovered us, and I don't know. Off the top of my head, I'd say that maybe one in 15 or 20 say that they followed a link from one of the sites that we've already built. And I'm actually speaking to somebody at the moment, a, a fairly big prospect, uh, that did exactly that with one of the university sites that we developed. So, you know, just from that, it's worth it. But don't expect that link of your client. Whether a link appears is up to the client. It's entirely up to them. Ask them if they mind. If they do mind, then I guess you, you would ask them if, if you could have a link on just a particular page, as I've already mentioned, a credits page. Maybe a credits page only really applies to sort of non-profit type companies, uh, but you could always always go for it on a, on a single page like the About This Site or a contact page, something like that. If they still mind, then leave it. Just forget it. Because you can always put a, put an example of a case study on your own website of that particular site, so you know people may be able to find it via a search engine that way. Uh, we tend to, for those... Uh, clients that don't mind us having a link, we, we formalise it in our terms and conditions, which I've covered many times in Client Corner, but the particular words are, the contractor shall have the right to incorporate in a readily viewable location a credit and hypertext link in the deliverables, which could be whatever, but more often than not, it's a, it's a website in our case. Um, Paul uh, alluded to this next point, which is basically use useful wording. One of the reasons why it helped our page ranking was because we changed all of the wording on the links to, uh, well, from design by Headscape through to web design by Headscape, which doesn't sound that different, but basically web design is uh, obviously a major search term and designed isn't. So, uh, yeah, if, don't just put designed by, use, use a useful term. I've seen things like web design and SEO by blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was looking at this morning. I guess that's the reason for doing that is uh, is is to um, up page ranking as as much as possible. Final point is, obviously, this can backfire on you if you're <coughs> if um if you're putting this link on a site that's being managed by the client, uh, because um, sometimes <laughs> <laughs> it's true though we've all seen it. I've been, uh, or I, I had, if your uh, website is a bad website if you've done a bad job. If yes, exactly. If you've done a bad one, but I didn't really want to say that. Uh, but it is. We've certainly had some many cases in the past of clients adding in very nasty, stretched, you know, uh, non-compressed images and things like that. And then it says "designed by Headscape" at the bottom of the page. It's not exactly a good reflection on us. Um, I, so there has it, really. been one or two, there has been one or two occasions where I've actually where a client has a micromanaged the design, and I haven't been able to control them from doing that. Mm. Where I have I've reached a point where I've said to them, "Look, you know, I don't feel." that I can put web design by Headscape on this anymore because we didn't do it. You know, <laughs> you've done it. And it, and we don't want to be associated with it. So, you know, it's quite a useful bargaining tool. It shows, you yeah. how, it shows a client how serious you are about them screwing up your site. 
or their said, site, shall I say. Said, said the temperamental designer. <laughs> You've messed up my design. Don't start. You know as well as me that that happens. <laughs> it does, yes, it's true. Anyway, that's all I had to say on the subject, so we can move on. Wow, that was quite a short segment for you. I'm impressed. <laughs> okay, let's move on to my long segment. Okay, so the idea of the client corner section, which is what we're moving into now, is that we tackle questions that clients have. Mm. However, this week, I'm answering a question that I have, if that makes sense. What? Um, a bizarre thing, I know, <laughs> and quite a selfish thing. But there was a, a particular, Hello, Paul, particular thing. Hello, Paul, I have a question for you. Yes. Paul, I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, anyway. Uh, yes. So, yeah, I had this issue that came up over the last week. Um, I wanted to start thinking about it. So th- this is a bit of background. We get inquiries to the Headscape site. You know, I want a web de- uh, website. How much does it cost? But I have to say I don't think we handle them very well, Marcus. I always have the vague feeling that they get lost somewhere um, or, like, as happened over the last week, I went away on the holiday. Nobody picked up the inquiries emails because they come to me. Um, so therefore, they didn't get answered. And that is our business, you know, and it doesn't look very good. So um, it got me thinking about the whole subject of how to handle inquiries um, and whether there's anything we can do to improve the way that we do it. And... Um, as far as I'm aware, there isn't much written on the subject. I did a quick search and couldn't really find anything, um, which is strange considering, if you think about it, the majority of websites are used as lead generation tools or indeed as sales tools, um, and that the correspondence between website owners and site users is kind of fundamental to the success of these websites. So I thought, as nobody else seems to be talking about it very much, then I thought I would. So, how the client corner appeared. Yes, so, let's start by looking at the mechanisms of getting feedback. Um, I guess this is a good place to start, really. How do users communicate with you through your website? And it's easy to underestimate just how many options are available to you as far as different ways that people can contact you. Um, And that each of these have different pros and cons. And I think it's important to think carefully about the methods you use on your site and make sure that you've got the right mechanism for your users because different users will respond to different things. So first up, email is the obvious one. It's probably the most common form of communication on a website simply because it's easy to (laughs) whack an email address on a website. Um, And users often like using email because, um, say, in preference to a form because it means that they get a copy of the correspondence that they send. However, email is not not without its problems. Not every user has an email address or has access to their email client at a particular time. So you might be, I don't know, looking at a website while at a library and obviously your email client is at home on your desktop PC that kind of thing um so there are problems with just whacking an email address up also obviously publishing your email address on the on a website opens you up seriously to spam um and there are ways of masking your address from spammers but to be honest that just creates a load of accessibility problems so if you're going to put an email address on your website you need to kind of accept that you're going to have spam which is a bit of a shame 
The next mechanism is probably the next most common mechanism, which is to use a form. A contact for a contact us form has the advantage over email because it doesn't require the email uh, the sorry the user to have an email client open at any particular time, so they can do it from wherever they are. However, it does suffer again from the spam problem. Um, we probably now get as much um, spam via our contact us form as we do via our email address. Um, one advantage of a form is that it allows you to funnel emails in different directions based on the type of inquiry the user is making. So, for example, if the user selects from a drop-down menu that they have a support query, then it can go to one person. If they select, well, they've got a, a sales question, then it goes to another person, which obviously is very useful, um, especially in larger organizations. So I think forms are probably the most versatile and powerful communication technique um, and certainly work well for larger sites. However, they're not always right 100% of the time. Another communication medium that you might not have thought about is forums. Um, the trouble is, is forums are often perceived as a kind of user-to-user -user environment where users talk to other users rather than users talking to website owners. But that doesn't have to be true. Forums are an excellent way of communicating directly um, with your users a kind of in a public environment. So they're particularly good on sites where the inquiries don't have to be confidential in nature, um, and especially when you get the same inquiry again and again. So a kind of a typical example of this would be a support forum. By answering a support question publicly, um, you avoid having to answer that same question multiple times because users then can refer back to the forum for the answer. This has also has the advantage of actually empowering the user to answer questions quickly without having to wait for a response. So in other words, I've got a support question. I can go to the forum, look to see whether that question has been answered before. If it has, I get the answer immediately. While if I have to email somebody and then wait for them to reply, that's not so good. So forums are a definite communication method that you might want to consider. Comments are a little bit similar to that as well. Comments are becoming a growing feedback mechanism partly because of the popularity of blogging. Um, and in many ways, they provide similar benefits to a forum. However, they are slightly more limiting because a forum, a user can start a new thread dedicated to whatever subject or question that they have. While posting a comment is normally attached to an existing web page on a predefined existing topic. And although um, there is, um, although this is restrictive, there are situations when you as a website owner are looking feedback for feedback on a specific issue. And so you want to avoid too much secondary discussion and comments might be a good solution to that. Another feedback mechanism is ratings and reviews. Um, and they can work particularly well when you're looking for feedback on, I say, a product line or a particular web page or article you've written. And although ratings provide only limited feedback, in other words, a score or a yes or no or whatever, they... That also means that they're so easy to do that users tend to participate. The ease of contribution make it much more likely that a user will feed back than they otherwise would. Um, so this w approach, in my opinion, works particularly well for website owners who want feedback on, say, a specific web page. Having a question like, did this page answer your question, yes or no, is much more likely to get a response than a kind of open comment box. Another one which is is relatively unusual is, is live chat, but it's kind of beginning to appear more and more. Um, now, to be honest, I've kind of got mixed feelings about using live chat. Now, if you haven't come across live chat before, that's the feature where 
Um, you can talk to somebody in real time via a little chat window. Um, and even that person can push you to various pages on the website or even initiate chat. So I've got mixed feelings about it. On on, um, I am convinced it can be a powerful tool when used on the right site. However, it can also create accessibility and usability issues. The best use of live chat I've seen is answering support queries. They allow users to get instant answers without having to pay an international phone call rate to, you know, to contact their foreign site. So if I want to talk to somebody, a website that's based in America, I don't want to have to call America. So it's, uh, an instant chat facility is pretty good there. Um, they also allow website owners to handle a greater number of simultaneous inquiries than, say, a phone call. You know, with a phone call, um, uh, you can only handle one inquiry at a time unless you have multiple people, but you can have multiple chat conversations going at the same time. I really like that. However, you like it, do you? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I've used it for asking for things like hosting costs in the past, but the the biggest frustration is that people have give it to one person in the office and you go and, the, and they've got live chat here. And then you notice in little print underneath, unavailable, unavailable at the moment and things like that. So, Yeah, which can be but, frustrating. But when it's working, the other it's thing, great. Yeah. The other thing is it can be intrusive if the website owner um, doesn't use it well. So a lot of these live chat facilities have got the ability to initiate a live chat conversation. Oh, I don't agree with that uh, at when all. suddenly this... Yeah, when suddenly this box pops up on your screen saying, there's somebody wanting to talk to you and help you navigate around the site. And that is just not good. Um, And also for smaller sites, as you say, you know, if you've only got a single person, um, then, you know, it it may be not up as much as it could be. And for smaller sites, it can be um, prohibitive to, you know, have somebody constantly available to answer, you know, calls and things like that. Of course, like any other uh, method mentioned... Let me start that sentence again. Of course, unlike any other method that we've mentioned so far, live chat doesn't seem to attract spam. And so in that regards alone, I find it quite appealing because I get Mm. really pigged off with spam. Because there is a cheaper and easier alternative to live chat, which is simply publishing an instant messaging address on your site. Um. This do, the downside of this, of course, is that it requires your visitors to have an instant messaging client with which to be able to speak with you and to have the same one that you do. So I might use AIM while Marcus coming to the site might use MSN and we can't really talk to one another. Um, so there are those kinds of issues. But instant messaging can be quite nice. I think really, to be honest, it's more of an alternative for people who um, like to communicate that way. Finally, um, don't forget the offline mechanisms of communication. It, they're easy to forget, things like uh, telephone and post and stuff like that. Um, in fact, it's surprising just how many organizations fail to include their telephone number and postal address on the site. Different mediums are good for different things, and although a website can be an amazing tool, um, there are times when you just want to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. Uh, if you fail to put these traditional contact information on your website, you do so at your own peril. Okay, so although different communication methods are interesting, I guess the real question is how to deal with inquiries once they come in from whatever source. Um, it's an area that in our, I feel like our own website is currently failing in, and so it got me thinking about, well, what do we suggest when we talk to clients? So here's some of the advice 
that I would be happy to give to a client. I think one of the biggest problems that I encounter is that there's no one who's clearly responsible for dealing with inquiries. Um, and I think probably the best thing that you can be can be done to improve feedback uh, or the, how you feedback is to ensure that there is at least one person in the organization that is cl- has a clearly defined responsibility to respond to these correspondence. Now, depending on the size of your website and the structure of your organization, you might need multiple people. But the key is to ensure that these individuals are in no doubt that they are required to respond to these emails. And I think we suffered from a little bit from that, that, you know, I put myself as the, the primary person that dealt I nominate with inquiries. Paul, Paul Boag. That yeah but in reality it's it's you that deals with them so i was kind of shunting them around to other people and it, it just is messy so um i've also learned from personal experience over the last week that the way that you collect and process your feedback is crucial as well so um when somebody completes an online form where does it go what happens if the person collecting those emails is away as in our case, how do you make sure your emails are not lost in transit? Um, and how do you ensure that the feedback has been responded to? How do you know it's been responded to? And I could give a really good example of this that we worked on a few years back. So we were working with a travel company that created uh, that um, created personalized travel plans and quotations based on a form that people filled in on the website. The problem was is this inquiry form was sent to um, as an email to a public folder in Outlook. Sales staff would then check the folder periodically and respond to any outstanding emails. The whole process was basically incredibly painful. The folder wasn't checked regularly enough and the salespeople would cherry pick the best leads, leaving many emails unanswered in the hope that some other sap would deal with them. So emails uh, would be responded to in some cases multiple times. Um, while in other cases they were just lost in the scramble. So we built for them a back-end system that allowed administrators to assign inquiries and track their progress through the system, as well as providing reporting tools on response times and conversion rates. Um, And that made a huge difference to their business and really increased their sales quite dramatically. And so having a clearly defined and efficient mechanism for dealing with uh, feedback on your site ensures that nothing will slip through the crack. Speed of response is another big thing. Ensuring that you respond quickly um, to an inquiry is a brilliant way of differentiating yourself from your competition and generating repeat business and that kind of thing. Now, one of the most common ways of achieving this is through automated responses. Um, So you complete a form or you send an email and instantly you get response Mm. back. Now, although these kind of responses have some value in the sense that you know, you as the user know that your inquiry has been received, they do nothing really to improve the user's perception of your service. Automated responses are kind of impersonal, and the email equivalent of those automated telephone systems that say, sorry to keep you on hold, but your call is important to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're just really kind of irritating. So in my opinion, there's nothing better than a, just a quick personal email saying, you know, thanks, Fred, uh, we've got your email, uh, we will respond to it as soon as possible. Um, in the meantime, if you've got any questions, call this kind of number. Uh, just making it more personal and making it obvious it's written by a human being, I think, makes a huge difference if you can't respond with a detailed response immediately. 
Um, now, obviously, if you're dealing with a large number of inquiries, that's not so easy to do. But for most businesses, I think that's achievable. Tracking feedback history. There's nothing more annoying than having to repeat yourself um, when you're, you know, you're inquiring about something. Um, and that's particularly true um, if you're doing electronic communications. Um, and to be honest, because there's no need to do it with electronic communications, make sure that whatever system that you're using tracks feedback and has the ability to archive and retrieve previous correspondence so that the, that the user doesn't need to cover old ground when he's talking to a different person next time round. Personally, I'm a fan of customer management systems and have been trying to bully Marcus into having one since the day we set up, but he prefers to remember everything in his head, <laughs> which is very annoying. Uh, You've got no defense of you for that. Well, no, other than I don't want to spend <laughs> all my life operating a customer management system. So there we go. What do you do? <laughs> After all that I've said, it all falls down at the end. Um, I think there are loads of great systems around that are appropriate to your business, hmm. whatever the si your size and whatever you do. I think if you're, if you're selling something like, I don't know, uh, software, CMS software, and people are, are uh, you know, basically inquiring to buy a license off you for say, three different types of software or something like that, then you're going to get a lot of inquiries and you're going to get a lot of, probably most of your inquiries will be valuable. Uh, so something that tracks them um, would be very useful. If you're offering the kind of services that we offer, which is we will build whatever you require, i.e. bespoke services, then a lot of, uh, I'd probably even say most of the inquiries that come through are not relevant to us. So you have to kind of do a, uh, you know, basically a filtering job, if you like, beforehand. And uh, there's no system that can do that. It has to be mm. personal. And it's just the type, it's because of the type of services we offer. Um, that I, I, I've, I've thought about it a lot. And yes, I have to put my hand in the air and one or two or three or four have gone awry over the years. But the vast majority haven't. Um, so there you so go. anyway... <laughs> <laughs> before this deteriorates on. into mumble, an mumble. argument between me and Marcus <laughs> yeah uh, my final point is that you might also want to think about the mechanism you use to reply to inquiries I recently listened to an interview uh, by a couple of guys that have written a book called Send um, which is all about email um, and they talk about the importance of knowing which medium to use to communicate with. Temptation is to respond in whatever way you've received it. So if you've received an email, you respond with email. However, depending on the nature of your inquiry, um, you might want to kind of need a bit more of a dialogue with your uh, client, in which case you're better off picking up the phone or instant messaging them. Or in some cases, good old snail mail. So there you go. That's that's my thoughts on dealing with inquiries that come into your website and i've gone on far far too yeah, i was long. about to ask you a question and thought better of it no <laughs> let's just stop it there and move on because rob goes on forever as well finally on today's show we have rob borley who is coming in to talk about some of the work that he does at headscape he's our technical lead and I'm always getting people writing, asking us about the way that we work as Headscape, what technologies we use, what approaches we take, how do we make our business decisions, that kind of stuff. And to be honest, I kind of often avoid these questions because I don't want this podcast to feel too much like a Headscape sales pitch. 
which obviously isn't normally because it's an embarrassment to us, if anything. Um, however, several times I've been asked uh, by people why Headscape mainly work with SP.NET instead of PHP or Ruby on Rails. And so I thought, well, okay, let's get our technical lead in to talk about it. Um, and as I know so little about server-side code myself, I thought it was best to get somebody in that did. So he actually has done a really interesting segment uh, where he gives a real insight into not just ASP versus PHP or whatever, but into how we run our business and, and how we go about making the decisions that we do regarding technology. So here's what Rob has to say. Hi, my name's Rob, and after I successfully passed myself off as an expert a few weeks back on Boeg World, Paul and Marcus have asked me to take a look at another question this week. So the question they've asked me to look at um, goes something like this. Headscape is primarily an ASP development house, an ASP.NET development house, um, while all of the cool kids seem to be using PHP and Ruby on Rails. How did Headscape come to this decision? So at first glance, this just looks to be uh, another version of the age-old debate, open source versus big, nasty Microsoft. Um, and in the case of Headscape, it looks like big, nasty Microsoft won the day. Um, but before we look at whether or not that was actually the case and what actually happened, uh, let's just take a quick look at the three technologies in question. We've got PHP, we've got ASP.NET, and we've got Ruby on Rails. Um, and I guess the first thing to point out is they're not the same thing, and so comparing them um, might possibly be a little difficult. We've got, um, so first of all, ASP.NET. .NET is a development framework. Um, it's not just for the web, um, and you may well have noticed that Microsoft is bringing out lots of applications which seem to have a .NET tag uh, based purely for Windows. And so it's a framework to build applications on, and, and one half of that is web applications. Further down the line, I think Microsoft are, are aiming at uh, some very clever stuff, you know, full integration between the web and applications working offline and this kind of stuff, um, based on .NET framework, the underlying thing you can build on. Um, and so on top of .NET, you have programming languages. So ASP+, Plus, which is essentially ASP version 4, um, you've got things like C Sharp, um, which, which work, you know, it's like a version of C, which works in .NET. Um, and so all of these languages are built onto the framework. Now PHP is actually simply a programming language. That, that's all it is. It's not a framework, it's a programming scripting language for the web. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that further down the line we could see PHP.NET appear. So a version of PHP um, that runs in the .NET framework. Or more likely Microsoft will make .NET, the .NET framework, able to, to use PHP. So by the same token, we've got Ruby on Rails, and Ruby is the programming language, and Rails is the framework. So in the same way that ASP.NET, ASP is a language, .NET is the framework it's built on, Ruby on Rails, Ruby is a language, and Rails is, is the framework. So how does all this fit together for Headscape? Well, what we need to, what, as Headscape, we need to remember is that we are a solutions-based company. So somebody comes to us with a problem, and we provide a solution for them. We don't have a list of products that we sell off the shelf, we sell solutions. And so the questions that we ask ourselves uh, when somebody comes to us with a problem and one of our clients comes to us um, always stay the same. It's what do we need to produce to solve their problem and what tools do we have available to produce it? 
Now, in our case, as far as tools, you know, we're talking about uh, knowledge within the team. Um, then we're talking about um, the hosting environment that we have, um, which is, you know, what web server there, what we've got available, um, what database technologies we've got available. Um, and then it's what is the most pro- productive combination available based on the tools that we have available and 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 what needs to be produced. So how do we join those two together in the most productive combination? Um, and that generally means that, you know, the best solution we can provide in the shortest period of time at the lowest cost. You know, that's what equals productivity. That That's the key thing at Headscape that we're concerned with. So before we can even think about whether or not we're going to use PHP or ASP or .NET or Rails or, or whatever, uh, we have to look at uh, what it is we can actually is available to us. Um, and often clients will come to us and they've already got an IT infrastructure. They've already got um, maybe a website in place that they want us to replace. They've, they've got a bunch of servers that they need us to use on an existing um, relationship with a hosting company. Um, so that might mean, for example that we are restricted to a Unix-based system. Now, if we're restricted to a Unix-based system in the current climate, that puts ASP.NET out of the window. That means that we will generally produce whatever it is in PHP, probably on on a MySQL database. Um, on the other hand, if they come to us and they've got a Windows-based uh, environment, um, obviously that gives us the option uh, of using PHP, but it, that also widens up, you know, Potentially, we could be using ASP here, we could be using .NET, we could be using SQL Server. And then this would lead on to the next question, which is, you know, what have we done previously that would stand us in good stead for this? So what could we reuse? You know, because, again, reuse means that uh, we don't need to reproduce things. It saves time, it saves a the client, therefore money, um, increases productivity. Historically, um, from from, AS, um, from Headscape's um, birthplace, if you like, Headscape's always been a, a Microsoft driven company uh, many many reasons for that which is you know, which I won't go into now um, but that means that we've got a legacy of, of ASP um, solutions built on SQL server databases um, which can be picked up reused modified to fit the, the new solution and so more often than not given the choice in a Windows environment um, we would go down the ASP and now the .NET route Based on the fact that that's that's where our foundation is, and that and that's where more uh, where our most productive solution can come from. So so far, you would have noticed that I've talked a lot about PHP and and .NET, ASP.NET in in particular, and not really talked, not really mentioned Ruby on Rails, and, and that's really more to illustrate the point um, that we're not while we are uh, predominantly a .NET house, we're not exclusive to that, and so there are many many occasions when PHP um, is the most productive and the best route for us to take. And so they are, to a certain extent, interchangeable. They're not in competition with each other as far as we're concerned. Um, but moving on to, to look at Ruby on Rails, um, that is possibly a slightly different situation. So becoming a predominantly um, ASP.NET development house has been a recent transition for us at Headscape. Um, so while we do have a historic legacy of using Microsoft technologies, of using ASP, um, actually transferring over to the to the latest edition to, to the .NET framework um, has been a recent decision. And when making that decision, again, um, the main question and possibly the only question that pops into our into our minds when making that decision is what is going to be the most productive thing to do. 
So from a productivity point of view, um, all things being equal, if we've got, you know, say 10 possible things we could learn about and, and implement that all achieve the same thing, what is going to be the most productive um, way of of moving forward in, in terms of, of learning how to do it, getting the skills into the team, um, and then deploying it into our client solutions. So the fact that Ruby on Rails is currently the coolest thing since sliced bread and all the cool kids are using it um, doesn't really come into the equation for us. Um, personally for me, um, as the person taking the lead in, in that, that kind of project uh, within Headscape, um, I mean, I've never been particularly cool at anything. Um, so the idea of being a cool techie uh, almost doesn't appeal. It almost scares me off. Um, so doing so just because it's cool is not an issue, and it's certainly not part of the culture of Headscape. Um, we will implement something and do something uh, and use a technology uh, based on whether or not it can produce the solution that we're after. Uh, and, yeah, they, maybe that sounds quite dull and boring, um, but, but that's our approach. That's the way we do things. But the main advantage for us in moving up to .NET was that the learning curve for, for the Headscape team uh, was relatively shallow. Um, we've got the foundation of ASP, but more than that, um, the documentation for .NET is just incredible. It's really, really good. Um, it's complete, there's depth there, it's clear, it's easy to follow. There are stacks of tutorials and examples and, and stuff like that out there on the web that you can use. Um, the resources and the tools available for .NET um, far outstrip what I've been able to see uh, so far for Ruby. Although, to be fair, I've not I've not looked massively. Um, the use of, of IntelliSense within the tool, uh, web developer, addition of Visual Studio, that's, that's all the co-prediction stuff. Um, just makes it really easy to pick up, really easy to, to find your way around uh, the different tools and, and the things that are available in .NET. Um, and that sort of thing isn't really possible with Ruby because Ruby is dynamically typed. So the IntelliSense is, cannot be so robust. It cannot work so well. Um, um, so from a, again, from a productivity point of view, if we're training somebody up, it's much easier for us uh, to train somebody into .NET and it will be on into Ruby, and that all comes into basically how much it's going to end up costing us long term. So without going into like a full-on technical breakdown and sort of you know boring most of you guys out there um, as to why we've gone for .NET over Rails, um, I hope that kind of gives you an understanding that the the the, the technical side of, of the technology isn't the major part of, of the equation for us. Obviously, um, the tools we use need to be able to do the job we want them to do. I mean that goes without saying. Uh, we wouldn't use .NET if it didn't if it couldn't solve the problems that we need to solve. Um, but the major part of the equation is that, you know, what is the best for our productivity? You know, what can produce the um, the solutions for our clients um, in the most effective way that gives them the answers to their questions um, in a time scale um, that they want it to happen at a price that, that they want and they're happy with? Um, and, and that, as, as a company, as a solutions-based company, is the major thing. Now, there are technical reasons and you know, um, why why I feel uh, we felt as, as a company that .NET was the way forward um, and maybe we can save that for another day this is probably not the place um, but hopefully that, that kind of gives you an understanding of where we're coming from Okay, thank you very much Rob, that was really good I gave him five minutes, he took ten <laughs>
You can tell he's a Headscape employee, can't you? <laughs> anyway, I think that about wraps it up for this week's show. Um, if you've got any questions or suggestions or um, things that you'd like to see on future shows, then as always, email me at paul at boagwell.com. Don't forget you can view all of the links we've talked about um, and get pretty much a good transcript of the show now. It's certainly getting better anyway at boagwell.com forward slash podcast and select episode 82, I think we're on. Uh, Yes, that's right. Um, check out the forum as well. There's always good conversations on the forum, and we do tend to lift things from the forum and use them in the show as well, as Marcus did today, so it's good to contribute there. And that about wraps it up. Thank you so much for listening, and join us again next week. Bye. Bye.